It's Tuesday, February 25th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Harvey Weinstein has been found guilty in a sexual assault trial in New York on two charges, but acquitted on three others, including some of the more serious charges of being a sexual predator. The next phase is sentencing, which will happen on March 11th, where he faces a possible sentence of five to 25 years. Shayna Jacobs, court reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for the verdicts and how it's all not just over yet. Weinstein still faces charges in L.A. Next, Congress is getting ready for its next fight, the clash over surveillance reforms. Lawmakers have a March 15th deadline to figure out how and whether to reauthorize provisions of the USA Freedom Act, including the controversial records program known as Section 215. Lawmakers may even want to work in changes to the FISA court. Jordan Carney, Senate reporter at The Hill, joins us for more. Finally, Target's delivery app Shipped is getting some pushback from its workers. Some are describing a culture of retaliation after speaking up on Facebook groups dedicated to being a helpful community for Shipped shoppers. Some have complained about the new algorithmic pay model the app uses now and are even being deactivated for speaking up. Lauren Gurley, staff writer at Vice's Motherboard, joins us for more on what it's like to work in the delivery app gig economy. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I hope that with this verdict, uh, it will become more obvious that those kinds of attacks on the on the survivors and victims when they're on the stand, uh, making it seem like it's all their fault, uh, will be realized as legal attacks that just simply are no longer going to work in this day and age, and it's time that lawyers stop using them. Joining us now is Shana Jacobs, courts reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Shana. Thank you. So Harvey Weinstein was convicted Monday at his sexual assault trial. He was found guilty of a rape and criminal sexual act, but acquitted on three other counts. Shana, tell us what we know about the verdicts. The DA's office, and I think people who supported this prosecution still consider it a victory. So he was acquitted of the top counts. That's true. Those counts related to a pattern of sex crimes, and they incorporated actress Annabella Sciorra with the two accusers who were ultimately part of the conviction charges, Mimi Halei and Jessica Mann. He would have faced a life sentence if he had been convicted on the top counts, although he's in his late 60s, and um, it's going to be widely believed that he'll face significant prison time regardless, and he faces a minimum of five years. So he's going away for at least five years based on today's conviction. The sentencing is not scheduled until March 11th, but really this isn't over even at that point because there's still some other counts that he's facing in Los Angeles that he would have to go to court for as well, right? He's facing certainly one rape charge and another sexual assault set of counts in Los Angeles. The LADA said at the outset of this trial that they wouldn't try to bring him out there until this was over. So it's not clear when they're going to try to get him there. The DA's office in L.A. is not saying, although now that he's in jail and if he remains in jail until he's sentenced, they would have to seek his extradition. My best guess would be that they're going to wait for his sentencing in March to try to get him out there where he'll start the whole procedure again. He's got to be arraigned and they've got to set bail. It'll be academic because he'll already be serving a sentence here. So that all sort of remains to be seen. And of course, his lawyers are going to try to get him 
freed from jail in the next couple of days, they're going to see if they can get a judge there to set bail on him again so that he can be free pending his sentencing. And Weinstein actually was just taken out of the back of the courthouse in an ambulance, although there's no medical emergency. It's just because he's on his way to the infirmary at Rikers Island. He had a back surgery or something, so he has difficulty walking. That's why you would see pictures of him using a walker and all. The jury consisted of seven men and five women. There was a little bit of a dust-up last week where they went to the judge and said, hey, you know, we can't decide on three of these counts, although we're unanimous on some of the other ones. So obviously we now we know what happened. How did the defense play the whole proceedings? Because they were kind of turning it back on the women, kind of tried to cast doubt on their accounts of what had happened. In general, the theory was that these women wanted something from him and sought relationships with him in order to either advance their careers or move up the social ladder, either in Hollywood or just in the world in general. And they were accused of victim shaming in the process of arguing that. But I mean, he's always maintained, and then I think to this day he maintains that he never had any sex with any of his accusers that wasn't consensual. Right. So I, I assume that's going to continue to be the argument going forward. And part of the evidence that they presented were, you know, things like flirty text messages that happened after the fact, or meetings, or other consensual sexual encounters that happened after they had accused him of, of assaulting them. So these were kind of the things that were trying to play into the credibility of the women. These were factors that the defense definitely honed in on, and the prosecution put forth an expert witness who testified to the behaviors of sexual assault survivors. She wasn't allowed to talk specifically about the accusers in this case, but she did say that survivors often maintain relationships, sexual relationships or otherwise, with their abusers and that they often decline to report what happened to them to police, to authorities. So the DA's office tried very hard to make this jury understand that there are patterns in behaviors of survivors of sexual assault that were definitely at play here, and especially because of the power differential between Weinstein and these women. The only one who was famous was Annabella Shiora. The others were trying to make it in the industry, trying to make a name for themselves. Well, as I said, the next big day is March 11th, when we'll find out what the sentencing will be, and then off to uh, L.A. after that, I guess. So, Shana Jacobs, courts reporter at The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Have a good night. The administration has asked Congress to reauthorize sort of all three of the provisions that are going to be expiring by March 15th. There's going to be a debate, you could say, (laughs) among the White House and Congress about if the White House is going to get what it wants. Joining us now is Jordan Carney, Senate reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Jordan. Thanks for having me on. There's going to be a new fight over surveillance reforms and surveillance powers that the FBI and others use. We have a deadline coming up on March 15th where... Lawmakers have to figure out whether and how they're going to reauthorize certain provisions of the USA Freedom Act. Jordan, tell us a little bit about that and then kind of all the wide-ranging stuff. This has to do with FISA. This has to do with a lot of different things. Yeah, so 
to kind of give a, a sort of a basic timeline, they have until March 15th to reauthorize a handful of provisions under the USA Freedom Act. The USA Freedom Act is a bill that passed back in 2015 that sort of reformed the you know, post-9-11 Patriot Act. The administration has asked Congress to reauthorize sort of all three of the provisions that are going to be expiring by March 15th. There's going to be a debate, I guess you could say, <laughs> among the White House and Congress about if the White House is going to get what it wants. Yeah, one of the provisions that's key to all this is known as Section 215, and that's what allowed people to gather this metadata on domestic text messages and phone calls. So this is going to be one of the big sticking points that a lot of people are going to go back and forth on. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the USA Freedom Act, again, that passed back in 2015, sort of changed the way Section 215 works by requiring the government to sort of seek metadata records from phone companies that used, and the change was to use a specific term, so like they'd identify a specific person or specific account and sort of limited in scope. That went into effect. You had... Dan Coates, who at the time was the director of national intelligence last year, sent a letter to Congress um, where he actually asked for this to be reauthorized and the other provisions as well. But he acknowledged in that letter that the NSA had stopped using that program that, you know, after USA Freedom was enacted, it just sort of became unworkable. And so they had effectively shut it down. Um, but Dan Coates sent a letter to Congress saying, oh, you know, I'm asking you to reauthorize the authority, uh, basically, for Section 215, and then also two provisions, uh, one dealing with sort of roving wiretaps and another provision dealing with um, sort of lone wolf figures. And how have senators and other congresspeople been reacting to this? I know Senators Richard Burr and Mark Warner, they want to end this program. Senator Lindsey Graham has said he's kind of torn on what to do specifically with Section 215. What is the buzz about what people want to do with it? Yeah, so like you mentioned, Senator Richard Burr, who's the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, he and Senator Mark Warner, who's the vice chairman, have introduced a bill that would end Section 215 authorization while extending the other two provisions, so lone wolf and the roving wiretaps, for another eight years. The House Judiciary Committee Democrats just released a bill today, and they're going to have a markup of that bill on Wednesday that would end 215. So you've got fairly key players in both chambers right now saying we want to end the authority for the call records program. You also have Attorney General Bill Barr, who's going to come up tomorrow. The reasoning that the administration gets isn't that we are actively using this program, but technology could change over the next, let's say, eight years. Um, that would allow us to restart it. So we want to sort of keep this potential ability in our pocket in case we need it down the road. How does FISA work into all of this? That's the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Obviously, the president has kind of railed against it because those were things that were used to look into his campaign, people in his campaign. There was this big inspector general report that basically said there was a ton of different abuses in that FISA warrant process when they were looking into the Trump campaign. So this is also part of what they're looking at or potentially going to be talking about also. Yeah, so you had uh, Devin Nunes and Doug Collins, the you know Republicans on the House Judiciary and House Intel Committee, send a letter to Jerry Nadler over the recess, basically saying, you know, we think we should use this upcoming debate to also work in potential changes um, relating to FISA in terms of the warrant application process, like you mentioned, the 
Department, Justice Inspector General Michael Horowitz came out with a report late last year uh, that was pretty critical of the warrant application process for getting warrant applications against Carter Page, who was a Trump campaign aide um, and found 17 significant inaccuracies or omissions as part of the FBI's warrant application processes. So you have some Republicans who are saying these aren't technically related, you know, this this debate we want to have over the FISA war application process and surveillance reforms we're going to have to deal with before March, you know, they're not technically related, but so little legislation moves in Congress these days. And, you know, they are sort of in the same broad topic, maybe you could argue. And so, like, why don't we go ahead and, and do these together? These are the conversations you're going to be hearing in the next couple of weeks, right before March 15th, when they have to actually act on this. So as kind of a, serves as a preview, really, for all these discussions mm-hmm. about surveillance. So we'll have to monitor what happens there. Jordan Carney, Senate reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. It's just like a stream of posts about, I walk someone's dog. I took out the trash for someone. Look, I gave someone some chocolates. Look, I gave them some hot cocoa. I noticed that it was their child's birthday and I bought them balloons. Like all of this extra labor out of their own pocket. Joining us now is Lauren Gurley, staff writer at Vice's Motherboard. Thanks for joining us, Lauren. Thanks for having me, Oscar. We're going to be talking about the gig economy. A lot of people think of Uber and Lyft, things like food delivery services, Grubhub, and things like that. The one we're going to focus on today is the Target-owned app, Shipped. And this one is pretty interesting. They use it to deliver their groceries and you know, whatever else. But what's happening lately is that workers are describing a culture of retaliation and fear. They have a couple of Facebook groups and things like that where people can talk about work and whatnot. And, you know, if people say something negative, they either get shut down and kicked off the group. Some have even gotten kicked off the app entirely. Lauren, tell us what's going on there. Just taking a few steps back a little bit about Shipped. It has 100,000 workers in the United States, so it's huge. They're all over the country. It was founded in 2014, and then Target bought it a couple years ago. And since then, it has been rapidly expanding. They've been flooding labor markets like all across the country with workers. The one place where it isn't so popular is Silicon Valley, where most gig economy apps have their stronghold. Anyway, so since Target bought shipped, workers seem to have noticed like a clampdown on discussing your working conditions on their Facebook group, which also has like 100,000 members. It's one of the only places where workers can get together and talk about things. I spoke to a number of shipped workers who said that they were removed from the group or deactivated or censored in some way for asking simple questions. Like I had a woman tell me that she just wanted to know like how she could increase her tips on the app and shipped censored that post because it wasn't you know as rosy and syrupy as it usually likes to have things so there's sort of a culture of retaliation that a lot of workers have individually described to me that sort of goes from you know just not being able to ask like a basic thing about your working conditions to a lot worse like you're literally losing your job and you have no idea why but you're pretty sure it's because you made some sort of snarky comment on their Facebook group. And one of the main things that happened recently 
is that they just recently changed their pay model. It used to be a commission-based pay model, so they'd get a flat fee plus a percentage of whatever the whole order was. And now they've gone a different way where there's different factors that are used, things like estimated shop time, whatever substitutions happen, street traffic, travel time. They take those things into consideration. And a lot of workers have been complaining that their pay has dropped between 40 to 50%. That's a big drop. A lot of gay economy apps have done this, like the bigger ones that you've heard about, maybe Instacart, DoorDash, any of the food delivery apps, like most of those are on a sort of algorithmic pay model, which really benefits the company because they can switch around how much different factors like travel time or traffic are weighed whenever they want meaning workers might be making a little money or good money and then suddenly they see their wages rapidly falling. People gravitated to Shipt for a long time. It had a really good reputation because it didn't have this sort of algorithmic pay model that was super mysterious. They're rolling it out in a number of metro areas. Workers I've spoken to in particular in a city called Kalamazoo in Michigan are saying that they've seen their pay drop by up to a third or 50%. This isn't true in every area. I haven't spoken to like the vast array of workers in different cities who've seen this pay model roll out, but a lot of them are saying that they're hurting very badly. They're seeing their wages drop a ton. And SHIP has responded to me and to media in general saying that actually they're paying very close attention to this. They're testing it out in new markets. And, you know, usually it's about the same pay. And in some cases it's higher. Now, I haven't heard that from any of the workers. So there seems to be a mismatch there. One of the cases that you quoted was in a Palm Springs, where it was 181 item order, and it had just big cases of Snapple, cases of soda, things like that. The person ended up earning $12.68 for that job. The customer didn't tip in that case. And under that previous pay model, they would have got something more like $44. So that is a big drop. One of the things you know, we're talking about kind of interactions that happen on the Facebook groups and how they delete comments and moderate it heavily. One of the things that I'd never heard anywhere was that the company shipped has this thing that they talk to their customers about. They call it bringing the magic. It's just an extra service, basically. A lot of customers live in gated communities, upscale communities, things like that. And they tell their workers to tack on gifts like thank you cards, flowers, balloons out of their own pocket and even take out their trash or walk customers' dogs. I've never heard of anything like that. So they don't actually tell workers to do this, but it's very clear that this is what they want workers to do. So if you go onto the Facebook group, which is moderated by the company that doesn't have any negative posts, it's just like a stream of posts about, I walk someone's dog, I took out the trash for someone, look, I gave someone some chocolates, look, I gave them some hot cocoa, I noticed that it was their child's birthday and I bought them balloons, like all of this extra labor out of their own pocket. And ship and its marketing and messaging frequently uses the term bringing the magic. And so workers will post online, be like, look how I brought the magic. And I think it, it really <laughs> makes a lot of workers who don't want to spend their own money buying these things when they're barely scraping by or doing extra labor when they probably have a lot better things to do. But it's sort of creates this weird culture where people feel like they now have to do this sort of thing or right. they could be deactivated because your rating also on the app matters a lot. And so how much the customer rates you can affect whether or not you can remain on the app. And obviously, a customer will rate better if you take out their trash or walk their dog or bring them some free candy. <laughs> Lauren Gurley, staff writer at Vice's Motherboard. Thank you very much for joining us. 
Thank you so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.